right, and we are back to once again explore faith for Sue Grace. I am Lee Grant, and yes, I am back with you now. I am so glad you're back, man. I missed you. Kevin, I'm glad to be back, brother. <laughs> I miss being here, and this is the day that your episode that you did solo last week published. We're recording on that day, Thursday, March 24th. Which is odd for us. We usually don't record on Thursdays because Thursdays are days where I take care of other things and I need to take care of in my personal life. It's also a day where I usually teach and practice jujitsu for three to four hours. And having just got over a stomach bug, which was absolutely horrid and atrocious, I am not training jujitsu tonight. That's not a good idea. No, my luck, I'd show up and we'd be doing a whole lot of what's called knee mount or knee on belly, where you carry the entire weight of your partner on their knee, on your stomach, not a fun position to, to drill, especially after you spent, you know, 12 hours throwing up. Hey, just it's, rub a little dirt awful. in it and move on, brother. Rub just some dirt on, on it. Come on, brother. Come on. Yeah. What else yeah, can we, you expect? We, we got so many emails of people saying, man, we want Lee back. We, we just, we want Lee back. So you're back, man. You're hey. back. We didn't even wait until the following week to record. <laughs> Two days later, and you're back. I Two made days. you come. I'm like, we're going to record. You, you had to. You were like, bud, you got to get back up here. People are starting <laughs> to ask questions. They're starting to wonder. Oh, but, man. And you know, whenever you, you get sick. withdrawn from me. I have completely. Well, not maybe completely, but you know, it's one of those moments though. whenever you get sick, you start to wonder. You start to question, why me? Why did this have to happen to me? Especially whenever you're in there and you're hugging oh, the commode. See where you're and, going with this. I like it. Everything. Yeah. You, you see what I'm doing. You see, I'm it's telegraphing good. It's here good. because it's going to tie into what our subject is that we're going to discuss today. And that is the question of, can we question God? You know, there are so many people, especially in evangelical and fundamentalist circles that espouse the idea that you cannot question God. And I think this is part of the passage that you're going to refer to over in Isaiah. You know, his ways are above our ways. His ways are not our ways. And anytime yeah. something happens in life, we tend, whether it's a sickness, you know, maybe just a temporary stomach bug, an impromptu stomach bug, or it's something more serious like cancer or neurological disease like multiple sclerosis or Lou Gehrig's disease, or it's a car accident. There was a recent tragedy in our local community. I say local community in a little community outside of ours, but still very close by in which six high school girls were tragically killed in a car accident. This oh, happened man. day before yesterday. It's a horrible, horrible thing. Things happen and it's naturally within us to ask questions whenever those things happen. Yeah. Why did this happen to me? What have I ever done to deserve this? Why did these people that this tragedy befell, what did they do to deserve it? And oftentimes you have well-meaning Christians, good people with good hearts and sincere hearts who will then say something along the lines of, well, you know, bad things happen to good people. And that may be something that we'll talk about in a later episode. But you shouldn't question God. His ways aren't our ways. Mm -hmm. His ways are higher than our ways. His ways are, are beyond our comprehension oftentimes, and it may be a part of his plan. And, and even though those are things that, that people mean well whenever they say them, they're often not helpful. Yeah. Um, sometimes they can be, depending on the individual and depending on their predilection and where they've come from, their background, et cetera, et cetera. But for the most part, by and large, it's not a helpful sentiment. And whenever those bad things happen, it can create cognitive dissonance whenever we hear that argument, well, his ways aren't our ways, his ways are higher than ours, and blah, 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 blah. We then begin to see our faith start to come apart at the seams. It then begins to unravel. 
well, why can't I question God? I've got all these questions. I've got all these issues. I've got all these problems and all of these things that are compounding. Mm -hmm. Why can't I question God? And one of the things that we'll note whenever we go through this podcast is questioning God is actually a highly biblical concept. Well, and to just further your point, you're referencing more of tragedies that people may go through in their life, and they feel wrong for questioning God and just accept that, hey, this, this happened. God must have had a reason for it. And that's certainly true. But in addition to that, a lot of times people use passages in the Bible as ways to control people when it comes to their doctrinal positions. And so oh, they'll yeah. tell someone, well, you you have to believe this because it's what the Bible teaches. And when someone begins to question that view because it doesn't really line up with the observable world around us, it doesn't line up perhaps with what we have experienced. It doesn't line up with even Scripture itself consistently. It doesn't line up with a, a loving and compassionate God. And people begin to question, well, maybe this view is wrong. Maybe I don't need to accept this. This doesn't make any sense. And I want to pursue studying this idea further. People will say, no, 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 you can't do that because you're questioning God. That's a, that's a sin to do that. And even though this view may seem difficult, even though what we're telling you may seem hard, this isn't what we're saying. It's what God has to say. And then they'll quote that famous passage, Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. My ways are higher than your ways, says God. And so because of that, we just have to trust in God, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, and lean not on our own understanding. And so even when something seems difficult, even when there's a doctrinal position that's that, that you don't want to accept, that's hard, or whatever it might be, well, you just have to accept it. And if you dare question it, then you're in sin for doing that. And so I've, I've seen this passage used and even weaponized to try to control people, to try to get individuals to see uh, their doctrinal position or to hold them captive in certain doctrinal positions. And that's why we really want to talk about this tonight, because as Lee, you pointed out, not only is it okay to question God, as we're about to see, but it's something that we need to do. It's actually an essential component of faith, and we're going to yeah. talk about that here a little bit later. But I want to just dive right into Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9, first and foremost, to, to go in a little bit more detail about what's taking place here. Because within context, this is not a passage that's saying, don't listen to compassion, don't listen to love, um, you know, just be desensitized and follow me. That's not what Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 is talking about. Within context... God is discussing his mercy and he is telling Israel that he is going to have grace and mercy upon them, even though they have betrayed him time and time again. Instead of judging them, instead of following through with a lot of these judgments and punishments, God is telling them that I'm still your father, I'm still your God, and I'm going to have mercy and compassion on you. That is is what is being discussed in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. And I remember the first time I actually went and studied this passage, I thought, I have completely butchered this in times past. <laughs> because I, what Isaiah 55, 8 9 is saying is that when it, when it comes to mercy, God's ways are so much higher, so much bigger than, what, than, than our ways, so much more than we could even begin to comprehend, so much more than we could even begin to understand. And that, is the context of Isaiah 55. So if anything, 
there may be times where we have to continue to show more compassion than perhaps we want to, more mercy than we would prefer. And when we do that, we have to go back and lean not on our own understanding, but we have to lean on the higher ways of God when we're demonstrating mercy toward our enemies. And this is a, the, the concept Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 5 and Luke chapter 6, um, particularly Matthew chapter 5. I'll go ahead and read this. Uh, this is a popular passage. This is Matthew uh, chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And then I'll, I'll quickly read Luke chapter 6, verse 34 and 35, while I have these passages pulled up. The Bible says here, and this is Jesus talking, If you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because He is kind to the grateful and the wicked. Therefore, be merciful. Those are the higher ways of God. It's in those moments that I need to trust in God and lean not on my own understanding. It's not in moments where I'm being coerced into doing something I don't even want to do or something that I'm really not even convicted on in the first place, and a preacher or a friend, or supposedly a friend, is taking these Bible passages and trying to, to hold them over, saying, oh, you've got to do this, you've got to do this. The Bible says trust in God. Next time someone says that, bring them back to the context. Bring them back to the immediate context of Isaiah 55, 8, 9. Bring them to the context of what Jesus taught when it comes to that mercy, grace, and compassion. So before we begin to look at why it's okay to question God, we need to realize that the passages that are typically used to teach against that are being cherry-picked completely out of context. Well, and I think that that statement about context and looking at Isaiah 55 within its context and looking at what Jesus says in Matthew and what he says in Luke to look at what it actually means to say his ways are higher than our ways and his ways aren't our ways. Right. And whenever you, understanding that context, that just goes to prove how important context is. It, it's so often whenever we discuss different things on this podcast. I think about all of the conclusions that I have held in the past. I think about the sermons that I've preached. I think about the sermons that I've heard. I think about the ideas that I have espoused and that I have promoted. And I think about how many of those were predicated upon a framework built upon ignoring context. And dude, it makes me feel about that tall. And I can make gestures now because we have a video component. Those of you that are just listening, you'll have to get on YouTube and listen at about the 11 minute mark, give or take a little bit to see. It makes me feel about that tall. And, and it does. It's, it's ridiculous in my mind to think, you know, how did I miss that for so long? How yeah. have I missed these things for so long? Because whenever you look at it within context and you read beyond just those few verses that I used to cherry pick, 
it becomes way more blatantly obvious what's going on. Mm-hmm. It becomes obvious what God's talking about. And, it, and it's funny. It's ironic, really. Whenever you think these passages are intended to communicate the power and majesty of God's mercy and his grace and his forgiveness. And if someone is gracious and merciful, well, it stands to reason that they would be open to questioning. So for someone to just start with Isaiah 55 and say, well, see here, we can't question God because his ways are higher than our ways. That, that takes the whole thing out of context and it really makes no sense within context. Yeah. And what's ironic about Proverbs chapter three, verses five and six, because I alluded to that too, just one of those other passages that people just randomly quote, same, same type of weaponization that people like to utilize with Isaiah 55, eight and nine. And by the way, let me make this point. When I say weaponization, I'm not talking about people with with ill intent. I'm just talking about Christians who are utilizing these verses uh, because they may actually be weaponizing these verses even against themselves to believe that they have to do something you know, crazy in order yeah. to follow God. And they're willing to just kind of have this gullible faith without questioning anything because they've been told this is what you have to do to follow God. And so they believe it. And then when they do question it, as I said just a moment ago, people want to throw Proverbs chapter 3, 5, and 6, Isaiah 55, 8, 9 right in their face and say, oh, no, you can't do that. But when when someone had read my book, my first book, A Different Kind of Poison, How Legalism Destroys Grace, they had reached out to me. And it was actually someone who, when I was preaching, um, it was he was so her dad, I'll put it to you this way, because I I'd highly doubt he's listening to our podcast, but no one would really know who it is anyway. But so he was a preacher at a congregation that I went and held a gospel meeting with about you know, eight, nine, ten years ago. And his daughter at that time was like 12 or 13. And so she remembered me. And here she is now in her early 20s reaching out saying, I don't really remember a whole lot other than you came to preach here and you you and my dad had a lot of Bible conversations and that I had heard you had erred away from the truth, that you no longer believe in sound doctrine anymore. And she said, but then I started searching for myself and studying for myself and coming to a lot of the same conclusions. So I picked up a copy of your book and, and I, I feel the same way. However, I'm being told that I'm trusting in my understanding and my own study and I need to just fall back on trusting in God again. And I, and I asked her, I said, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, it, when it says lean not on your own understanding, I said the ironic thing about that is people have, have used their own understanding to misapply that verse. <laughs> That's the cruel irony of Proverbs 3. <laughs> and I said, so they're actually using their own understanding with Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. And I said, Pro- number one, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 is a proverb. And so we can't just, just take this as a blanket statement. It has to be properly qualified. I said, furthermore... Yeah. What is the theme of Proverbs? Wisdom. It's all about using wisdom. It's all about making sure you're consulting other people. You're using wisdom. Um, you're not just taking something because someone told you it's the truth. I said, it's about wisdom. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 is not saying do not be a critical thinker because they had told her she was thinking about her own faith too critically and that she just needed to have a more simple faith. And so she was really afraid because she said, well, am I studying the Bible too much? Do I just need to accept a straightforward reading of Scripture? And even if it's difficult to accept, I just need to follow through with it. And and, and we had a really good conversation. I explained to her, well, let's first look at the context of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. But 
No, the Bible never says we cannot, that it's wrong to be critical thinkers. The Bible never says that we should just blindly accept a straightforward reading. Um, in fact, in doing that, we would be trusting in our own understanding instead of finding out the original meaning and what it would have meant to the con to the audience at that time and what the context is and so on and so forth. So I just wanted to add that in there because that was just really ironic to me. And it's ironic how people do use their own understanding to teach you cannot use your own understanding. Well, what's hilarious is that you're being too critical about your faith you need to simplify your faith. And then I think about that paradigm that I preached in for so long that you preached in for so long and brother, it's anything but simple. Like yeah, it's incredibly yeah. convoluted. That's what's hilarious to me. It's yeah. like, Oh no, no, no. You're, you're, you know, this is, this is way too complex. You're being way too critical. It's very simple. It's very straightforward. Here's your five step plan of salvation. And here are the five items of worship that you need to observe. And within each of those paradigms, you have sets and subsets of things that are acceptable and not acceptable. You have definitions that are acceptable and not acceptable. You have different ways of teasing all of that out. And unless you have all of the technicalities, just just so, well, then you've completely missed the boat. That's anything but simple. Yeah. I mean, a, a simple faith that trusts in Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith and that seeks to emulate him in his selflessness, in his giving unto others, in everything that he did and stood for while he was on this earth. That's incredibly simple, but it's really difficult too. I mean, it, it, it does have its difficult moments. In my opinion, it's easier. But to say that that's a simple faith is you're being too critical. That's wild. And, and what you're saying though, is exactly spot on because mm -hmm. a lot of times, whenever we do begin to question things, whenever I began to question things, whenever I begin this process of unraveling that big ball of wire, that yeah. was my faith, dude, it was, it was tough because I felt a measure of guilt. And I know a lot of people have written to you. They've written to me about the guilt they feel whenever they begin that process of detoxifying their faith. I really like that term more than deconstructing, but whatever and ever, amen. But people detoxifying begin to do a deconstructed faith, right? Detoxifying their deconstructed faith. <laughs> They're looking at this through a completely new lens. They're trying to figure out and reorient themselves to what kind of lens they need to look at it through. And you begin to feel, at least I did these pangs of guilt because you're questioning the supreme creator of the universe. You're, you're questioning God. Yeah. And it's because we conflate the framework that our faith is built on with God himself. And we assume that the framework that we've built our faith on is absolutely irreproachable. And then whenever those chinks in the armor begin to present themselves, when we begin to see cracks in the edifice, it unnerves us. So then we yeah. begin to question it. We begin to tease those things out. And then if you're anything like I was, you start to feel a measure of guilt at doing that because you're questioning God. But the issue is, is it's, if you really think about it, when you get down to it, I came to the realization, it's not really the fact that we're questioning God. I'm questioning my perception of who God is. Mm -hmm. I'm not questioning the Bible. I'm questioning my perception of the Bible. Is the way I've read the Bible really the way I should read it? Is that really the lens that I should be viewing Scripture through? If I don't have an appropriate view of who God is, if I have an, an unbiblical or maybe even an anti-biblical view of who God is, well, of course, that's going to color everything. And my view of God then needs to change. And the only way that I can change that is by questioning that paradigm. 
Yeah, and it's funny how going back to what you were saying, the idea of of a of especially the legalistic works based Church of Christ system we were a part of, people calling that simple, um, because at, at this at the same time, you know, you had these individuals who were critiquing this young lady because they said that she was being too critical of she was she was she she had too much critical thinking going on in her brain when it came to the Bible and when it came to the scriptures, when it came to how she was applying and interpreting the scriptures and that she was spending too much time overthinking. And that was one of the accusations that was hurled at her as well as, well, you're just overthinking. You're just, you're, you're looking too deep into this. But then by the same token, these same individuals will quote passages like Acts 17, 11, that talk about searching the scriptures and inquiring about the scriptures daily in 2 Timothy 2, 15 and being a good Bible student. and Being you know, a Berean. First, first, first Thessalonians 5, 21, test all things. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, that we need to examine ourselves. And so they would accuse other people of not studying enough. But then when people within their circles begin to change their views due to their study, they change their tune and say, well, now you're studying too much. And this is that, um, <laughs> you, you know, it goes goes back to the um, this illustration of, well, I, we're, we're not too we're not too hot. We're not too cold. We're just right. And that shows this really just this. I'm not going to use the word dishonesty because I don't think that's necessarily a fair assessment, but it's definitely an unfair way of going about looking at other people who are studying the Bible. When we want to accuse those who disagree with us of, of not studying enough, and then when people do begin to question who have who, who we think are part of us and our views, we go, wait, well, now you're studying too much. Well, it, it's just very inconsistent at best. Yeah, it's uh, an intellectual, yeah, yeah. An intellectual inconsistency more than it's dishonesty because the people that hold those positions, they hold them honestly. I mean, you held those positions honestly. I held those positions honestly. We held those positions because we had been taught those positions. We had been taught that that's what truth was and that's what it meant to pledge your fealty to God. That's what it meant to follow Jesus. And then yeah. we, whenever we began to, to examine that, well, no, hold on. You're all in. You figured this out. You've landed in the Goldilocks zone of what it means to follow God and be a Christian. You're a Christian now. And if you veer off of this, well, then you're you're going into uncharted territory and that's dangerous. Yeah. And that's that's just simply not the case. No, it's not at all. And that and and even going back to this idea of legalism, we were talking about earlier, you know, we've been talking about that and we use that phrase a lot. And that's not a derogatory term. It simply means that it's a transactional faith. You believe that you yeah. have to to do a certain amount of acts in order to earn salvation. And while uh, there are Christians out there, including myself for many years, who would have denied the claim that I was legalistic, I would have told you I'm not legalistic. I still was legalistic, and that's one of the problems of legalism. People don't even realize it. And I think that's one of the problems with using Isaiah 55, 8, and 9, and Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. They don't even realize that by utilizing those passages and taking them out of context the way they are, they're actually not trusting in God. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're actually the very ones who are guilty of doing what they're accusing other people of doing. But as you pointed out, a lot of times it's not so much questioning God as it is just questioning the structures we've been given, the frameworks, the paradigms about the Bible and about God that we've been given. And and I just want to put this out there because think about this for a moment. When there is a any real any religious system, 
and religious group and leaders that's telling you it is wrong to question your beliefs, is that not a self-validating system? And is this, uh, yeah. I mean, I mean we, we, we accuse, at least I did growing up, I accused Mormons of this very thing because they were not allowed when they came to our door. I was in preaching school and my roommate and I, when they came to the door, and of course I was much more aggressive at that time, so I scared them off and my roommate actually told me, I just want to study without you there, Kevin. Because um, <laughs> uh, he said, they, they're not going to come back with you because I wanted to convert them. And I was actually telling them how inconsistent they were. They said, well, we want to study. And we were trying to give them materials and books. They, oh, we can't accept that. I said, so you want me to accept the, the the tracks and the books you're bringing me to read, but you don't want to read the tracks and books that I'm bringing you to read? I said, how is that fair? And they said, well, we have the truth. <laughs> I said, well, okay, we got the truth. You know, it doesn't work out. I mean, you, it's 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 a rock and a hard place at that point. I mean, you're you're no matter where you go, you're trapped. And so, any this this whole concept that says, well, you can't question. It's wrong to question. Because in doing so, you're questioning God. I, I believe that is not only self-validating to what you're already believing, and it's this vacuum that we often talk about, how people study in this vacuum, but also in this in this echo chamber, but also it 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 it's controlling. It's yeah. very controlling. And I felt the same way you did, Lee. Even when I started looking at these things, I thought, well, maybe I'm wrong for questioning these things. Maybe I shouldn't mm-hmm. be doing this. You know, maybe this is Satan. People will try to throw, well, that's just Satan working on your heart. And I thought, well, maybe that's what's going on here. But it seems clear. Like, this just makes sense. And well, so that's, you know, that that was that was a, a, a pretty big issue when I first started changing. So I can definitely empathize with people who have had those verses thrown out uh, again and used against them when they were, uh, as you said, detoxifying or deconstructing their faith system. Well, and it's one of those things, if if we say that we can't ever question God and we can't ever question the Bible, and what that means is, is you can't question the paradigm under which our particular group is functioning. You can't question those parameters. You can't question those doctrinal positions that we hold to, whether it's in my case, the one cup, no Sunday school, women don't cut their hair, women don't wear pants, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You can't question those things. Yeah. I mean, you can question them if you ask the right questions. And as long as you arrive at the previously determined pre-approved answers, well, then question all you want. But mm-hmm. if you're going to start going a field of that, that's a problem. The problem is, is that in doing so, you never are able to investigate your view of God to see whether or not it's actually a healthy biblical view of who God actually reveals himself to be. You're never going to get there because you're not allowed to explore faith in pursuit of God's grace. That's the entire purpose of this podcast. (laughs) But if you put up that guardrail and you're not ever allowed to question your understanding of God in the Bible and who God is, It's no different than a cult. It's no different than any other dogma that exists that doesn't allow you to examine anything beyond those limitations of what's already been established as the status quo. Any religion that says it's not allowed to question itself is a dangerous religion, in my opinion. I I, I don't think it's a religion that's worth holding on to. And I would even say that that would be true with the previous position I had in Pentecostalism because we were oneness Pentecostals. Maybe it'd be valuable in the future to do a podcast on the Godhead and different perspectives on that. Oh, yeah. I think that'd be great. Yeah. 
I, th- I think it'd be a fun conversation to have, but you weren't, you really weren't encouraged to question the oneness paradigm. You could study it all you wanted to, mm-hmm. but you're so programmed to read those passages through a oneness lens. You're not really going to get anywhere else. Yeah. It's, you're not going to arrive at any other conclusion. You're not going to be able to look at things factually because those oneness blinders have been put over your eyes. You're not going to see it Yeah, unless unless you can really examine and dig deep, but it it's, it really is hypocritical. I, I like the story that you told about the Mormons. It is hypocritical. If you can accept material or you can give materials, but you're not willing to accept or read what anyone else has to say. Yeah. And you see in scripture, God's not that way either. No, no, no. I mean, Joshua 24, 14 and 15, this is a, a, a very famous passage. People typically have this Bible verse hung in their house. It's on, the or, on a little sign, a little yeah, or, or they'll, you know, have it as a welcome mat or whatever, you know. But but for me and my house, we yeah. will serve the Lord. Well, what's before that? Basically, it's it's the challenge that or it's the the option that if you want to serve God, you know, other gods, go serve those gods. But if you want to serve the true and living God, He's there. He's there if you want to serve him. And there was there was no coercion in that. And even John 1, I want to read this, verse 45 through 46. It says, Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. And this was the response that Philip gave. Come don't question me. And, yeah, yeah. I didn't say don't question, just accept. He said, Come and see, like, yeah. like come, come and see for yourself. I mean, this is this is something that you can determine. Do you want to follow God? Do you want to follow Jesus as the Christ? Do you think that He's truly the Messiah? Well, come and see. We're not going to yeah. coerce you on this, and and that's something that we see repeatedly all throughout Scripture. So when someone says you can't question God, they're already starting with an erroneous foundation for how they're approaching their faith how they're approaching God and even how they're approaching their, their view of the Bible in totality, really. No, they really are. And it's interesting to, to bring that up, especially about Joshua, because at this point in Israel's history, you know, I mean, they've been through a lot at this point. They've, you know, been in Egypt as slaves for, you know, according to the biblical record, somewhere in the neighborhood of 400 years. And then Moses comes along he leads them out of slavery. Let my people go. You get the 10 plagues. You get the crossing of the Red Sea. You have Israel coming to Sinai. They're there. They receive the law. Moses goes up to Sinai. They receive the law. You have the golden calf incident. You have all these things that happen. And then they they travel and they come to the gates of the promised land that have been promised to Abraham. They come to the gates of the land. And Moses sends out spies. The spies go in. They see that the you know the land is flowing, metaphorically speaking, with milk and honey. It's a great land, but these spies are distraught. You've got these giants that are out there. You have these soldiers, these walled cities. There's no way we can take it. And then you have Joshua and Caleb saying, y'all, what's the deal? We can, we can go in there. We can take the land. We've got this. God's on our side. Well, God's displeased with the lack of faith Israel has. So now they have to traverse the wilderness for 40 years for that generation that was unwilling to go into the promised land to die off. Mm-hmm. So they come out of slavery. They go to Sinai. Moses disappears for 40 days. They think he's dead. They get the golden calf. And then Moses make, melts it down and makes them drink it. A bunch of them die. They, they go through the wilderness. They have all this other stuff happen. 
40 years passes. Moses is dead. Aaron's dead. Joshua, he's the de facto leader now of Israel. And now once again, they find themselves at the gates of the promised land. They're getting ready. Joshua says, fear the Lord, serve him with all faithfulness, throw away the gods your ancestors worship beyond the Euphrates and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, you just get that thinking out of your mind right now. You just quit questioning that completely. No, he says, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors serve beyond the Euphrates, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. They've gone into the land. They've gone through all this trouble. And now pick who you're going to serve. Are you going to serve God or are you going to serve these other gods? For me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Yeah. And this is a decision that they had to make. This is a decision that everyone has to make. And in choosing who we're going to serve, the question is, are we going to do the deep digging necessary? Some might even say it takes muscle in a shovel to dig all the way through to find out. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. That was tacky. But it, it does take some work to dig in. Are we going to serve God or are we going to serve our paradigm of God? Are we going to serve our idea of who God is? Or are we going to serve who the Bible actually reveals God to be? Now, there are some people that say, well, it's okay to question God himself because there are times whenever people question God. I mean, Jacob wrestled with God and had his hip dislocated in the process. Job, he questioned God over and over and over again, and no fault was found in him. Yeah. And people have wrestled God. They've challenged God. And they weren't wrong for doing it. The Bible nowhere condemns these people for well, questioning. No, and I think that's an important distinction because I think today many Christians are doing what we have been talking about, and that is questioning their paradigm, questioning the way they were taught to understand the Bible, questioning the way they were taught to view God. And so it wasn't, it, it can't even be really equated with questioning God or the Bible. But that said, as you pointed out, there's a distinction that needs to be made because we're going to take this one step further and say that it is okay to question God. So even if it's not so much your understanding of God or your understanding of the Bible, but you're actually questioning the Bible itself. You're actually questioning God himself. If you get to that point, have you crossed a line? No, you haven't crossed a line. And, and that's why, yes, it's important to talk about how a lot of people are just questioning their perspectives of God and their understandings of the Bible, and that's true. But it's not even wrong to question the Bible itself. It's not wrong to question God himself, because that's where we can learn more about God. That's where we can really have that true relationship with God. As you pointed out, Throughout the whole Bible, we see people wrestling with God. Even Israel carries with it the, the understanding, the idea, the word itself, wrestling with God, struggling with God. And that's what we see Israel doing all throughout the Old Testament. And Christians, since the time of Christianity, have been doing what? We've been wrestling and struggling with God. What are we doing right now? We're wrestling. We're struggling with God, these difficult concepts. That's where faith is truly going to be found. We're able to begin to develop our faith. And there's so many examples that we can talk about. And, and we put a list together of some of these examples, which you've already alluded to a, a few of those. Um, but we see this happening all throughout the Psalms and the prophets. Habakkuk 1-2, Psalm 74, Psalm 88. 
I mean, David really, a lot of times in the Psalms, goes after God. And while sometimes, in fact, I dare say most times, he concludes by saying, you're still worthy of worship and I'm still going to follow you. Psalm 88, just read it sometime. I'm not going to read the whole Psalm in this episode, but just read Psalm 88. And, and Psalm 89 too. Yeah, and so and it doesn't end with that. It's not a happy ending. It's just David pouring out his heart to God of things he doesn't understand. And we can do the same thing. We can question God. We can be, we can even be mad at God. That's okay. It's okay. So in order to prove this, just so you know I'm not making this up, let's see what the Bible itself has to say in regard to, to questioning God. So probably one passage that everyone is very familiar with is Genesis chapter 18, and that is where we see a negotiation taking place in this story between Abraham and God. So Sodom was about to be destroyed. And almost it's like a almost like an auctioneer, really. You know, Abraham is is saying, "Okay, God, what about fifty? Will, will you will you destroy them if there's fifty? Okay, well, what what about well, you know what about forty five? What about forty? What about?" And he just continues to go down all the way to just ten righteous people. If if we can, if, if there's just ten, will you save Sodom? And God ended up agreeing. What if Abraham would have never interceded? Now, you may say, yeah, but Sodom ended up being destroyed anyway. Sure. But Abraham was Abraham tried to intercede for Sodom, and God was not upset. God didn't say, how dare thee, Abraham? You're questioning me. I'm going to strike you dead. That's not what the Bible says. And, yeah. and then like it's like almost a kid. Ask, seeing what they, what all they can get from their parent. What about this? Well, okay. Well, okay. If you, if you do 45, what about, what about 40, 40, 35, 30? You just keep going down the list. And so we see that as, as one example of where not only are they questioning God, but negotiating with God. There's nothing wrong to negotiate with God because we see that in scripture. Another passage that I was going to allude to, and then I'll then I'll hand off a, a couple of these to you. But you know, God told Moses, and I love this one. This is in Exodus chapter thirty-two, nine through fourteen. And you can really read the whole the whole chapter to get the full context. But this is after they had, as Lee pointed out earlier, Israel had made the golden calf, and they God it said God's anger was aroused against them. He was upset. It was burning hot against them, and so God tells Moses, now this is according to the story of Exodus, and there's a lot of ways we can understand Exodus, but just according to the story here, God tells Moses, okay, I am so angry. I am so mad, Moses. I'm just going to destroy everybody, and I'm going to start over with you. And Moses actually says, God, can you calm down a minute? Can, can we have a timeout, God? Let's, <laughs> let's, let's, let's come over. I mean, this is literally, I, I'm not being derogatory. I'm not being uh, irreverent, irreverent. This is, this is the tenor of That's this passage. The story goes, yeah. And so, so you know, God, God, God is, is ticked off. And Moses says, look, God, let's calm down. Can you take a deep breath, God? And God, you know, takes a few deep breaths. And, and he says, God, don't you remember what you said? You made this covenant. And if you were to somehow destroy everybody and start over with me, what is everybody going to think about you? What kind of God is are you really if you do that? I mean, that's that's not a God who's keeping his word. That's that's not really going to make much sense, is it, God? And God says, "Yeah, you're you're right, Abraham. I mean, you're right, Moses. Um, you're right. Good point." 
Good point. And then he changes his mind. Now, this is according to the story. <laughs> okay, but like I said, there's we can talk about how to understand Exodus another time. The point is, is that God is presented in this story as someone who not only had to be calmed down by a human, but someone who had to be reminded by a human and someone who changed based upon what a human told God. And so to me, this passage is phenomenal. I mean, this yeah. is such a powerful passage because, you know, and it also shows Moses, like Moses wasn't afraid. Moses wasn't like, oh, I better not oppose God because then God might get angry at me and want to kill me. No, like Moses is seen as the mature one in this conversation. If we're being just completely textually honest, God is seen as an immature being in this text that Moses had to talk down. And, and, and finally, when God was able to calm down a little bit, everything was okay. People can can look at this text and you can hear what I'm saying and say, "Oh, that's irreverent. I can't I, irreverent. I can't believe you're saying that." Read this. Read the top. Read the the chapter. That's exactly what's going on here. Now, I think there's other ways to understand Exodus that are much more in keeping with uh, how ancient writings were written. But the point is, this is a story that we see in the book of Exodus, and it is a powerful one. So, well, and in terms of questioning God. In terms of questioning God, it, it's it's crystal clear that you can do that because just yeah. like you said, Moses does that. He questions God. He doesn't just question God, but he calls God out for being inconsistent with the nature that he had revealed to Moses up to that point. Now, now to speak on behalf of Yahweh, I get where he's coming from. I get why he's angry. I mean, here he is making this promise and setting all this up so that he can fulfill the promise he made to Abraham so long ago. He's gone into, into Egypt, and in those 10 plagues, he's essentially had a cage fight with 10 of Egypt's deities and proven that he's superior to all of Egypt's deities, right? He's gone in there and trounced every one of them. He's led Israel out. He's shown his power and might on Mount Sinai. Moses is up there for 40 days and then he comes back down and here they are with the golden calf dancing around down there. And God's like, really people after everything I've done for you, I can't leave you alone for 40 days and you're going to do this nonsense. I'm just going to wipe you out. <laughs> so, I mean, as a parent and as someone with admittedly a temper, it's much better than it used to be. I get where God's coming from there, but you know, the shoe kind of flips whenever you get over to numbers, you know, the shoe changes to the other foot, you might say. Because at this point, Moses has led the people in Numbers 11, and he's weary. He's having to judge these different things that are going on. He is the man. He's probably at this point getting very little sleep. He's weary. He's tired. He's stressed out. And the burden that God has placed on him to lead his people has become too heavy of a burden for him to bear. And so he says he needs help. And God didn't strike him dead in that moment either. God said, you know what? Yeah, that'll be all right. You pick some wise men among you, and that's when you see the judges or the framework for what would be the rule of law at the hands of the judges of Israel begins to manifest itself as well. Well, and he he go he confronts God. I mean, when you look at Numbers 11, he, he he's you, this isn't a, a what I would call even a humble request because he actually says, God, you have placed too great of a burden on me. He's blaming God. <laughs> he is he is blaming God for for this burden. And he didn't say, "No God, I 
maybe I'm just not understanding this correctly. Maybe, you know, I just need to change the way I'm doing things. Yeah, but he's the one that's losing his temper at this point. God oh, lost his temper oh, over there in Exodus, and now Moses yeah. is losing his temper. Well, no doubt, no doubt. And that's what I'm saying. I mean, he's... And he's late to that. Yeah, and he's challenging God. I mean, he, in essence, is, is rebuking God. He's giving God a rebuke by saying, what you've done is too difficult. It's too hard. And I need help, God. I need I need help. And God didn't say, Moses, I can't believe you questioned me. How dare you think that I place too great of a burden on you? I am a God that never places greater burdens than are necessary. So you don't need to question me. He didn't I'll say anything like that. I'll never give you more than you're able to bear, Moses. Yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> Bring in 1 Corinthians 10 into the mix. Yeah. You know, and, and we don't see that. Instead, as you pointed out, Moses is the one ticked off and he goes to God and he goes, God, you, you, what you've done, this is too great of a burden for me. And as you pointed out, what did God say? God said, you're right. I'm sorry. I'm, I, you know what? Let's, let's appoint some judges to help you out. Um, let's, let's appoint some leaders to help you out so that, that, that this burden is not too great. I mean, these passages are, I, Lee, I don't know about you. Did you ever like deal with these passages and realize the implication of these stories? I mean, this is powerful stuff about how the Bible is presenting God. No, nah, man, I never picked up on it at all because they're not the things that you hear taught over and over again, either in my previous Pentecostal days. I mean, in my previous Pentecostal days, pretty much the only things we ever heard preached about were the oneness of the Godhead, uh, Jesus name, water baptism, and speaking in tongues, that was pretty much it. And in the one cup church of Christ days, it, I, you never, at least I never heard any of this taught. I never heard anything taught about whether or not you could question God. And in fact, if the subject of questioning God was ever brought up, it was always presented in a negative. It's not something that you do, even yeah. though there's ample biblical evidence for it. And I'd like to bring one more up. It's not in our notes, but I'd like to bring this one up and I'll hand it back off to you. And to me, the best example in scripture of someone questioning God is Job. I mean, it, it, in my opinion, I think Job is probably, that's what the whole book is about. Mm -hmm. You know, at the very beginning of the book, we're introduced to Job. We're introduced to how he has all of this stuff and he has all of these blessings. And then you have the accuser, not Satan. The accuser comes before God and says, yeah, the only reason that cat's following you is because you give him all this stuff. You take all that away, he won't follow you. And God says, go ahead. So you have this divine wager being made in heaven in which all of Job's wealth, his family, everything's stripped away. The dude loses everything. And then he has his three friends that come and sit with him. All of this happens in the first few chapters. Well, over the next, what, 40 some odd chapters, you have the back and forth between Job and his friends. And if you read what Job says, and it's always intrigued me. I've always heard the statement, the metaphor, that person, that woman or that man or whoever has the patience of Job. If you read what Job says, and I didn't realize this until maybe 15 years ago, the church we were worshiping with at the time in Allen, Texas, we did a read through of Job. We studied Job on Wednesday night, starting with the first chapter all the way through the end. And while we're reading what Job says and studying that, that's when I realized this cat ain't a patient fella at all. I don't know where we get off saying Job's a patient guy because he's not. He's well, you, questioning God the well, whole you, time. Yeah. Well, you have the writer of Hebrews, you know, talk, talking about um, the patience of Job, Job and, or James. Yeah. Excuse me. Yeah. Talking about, you know, the patience. But really, that word is more persistence. 
yeah. the persistence of 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 Job. But go ahead. Exactly. I'm sorry. Well, no, no, dude, and that's true. And whenever you read it, you know, everyone thinks about the patience of Job, and that's the that's the milieu we view that through. That's that's how we view that. But if we view it as persistence, it makes a lot more sense because Job is persistent in his questioning of God. He's absolutely persistent. He does not relent. His friends accuse him of sin. You have to have sinned in some way. And Job maintains his innocence the whole time. He questions God. He calls God out. And then the last was eight chapters or so of the book. God answers Job. And then at the end of it, Job, he comes out. I'm going to pull this up on my phone. That's why I have my phone out here. God basically tells Job, you know, tells him how it is. And then hear where he says in uh, Job 42 and verse four, he says, here and I will speak. I will question you and you will declare to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes, my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. There are some, and if I can find this, I'll send it to you. But there are some Hebrew scholars that believe that there's something in the grammatical construction there in verses five and six that denotes or indicates sarcasm. So even in this state where Job says, well, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes, that he's being sarcastic. He's like, oh God, well, you've answered me now, haven't you? You still haven't answered why I've suffered. That there's some, And maybe there's something to that, I don't know. But this is what's interesting to me. If we take a look at verses 7, yeah, just verse 7. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, that's one of Job's friends, my wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Mm -hmm. So in the previous 40 some odd chapters, you have Job questioning God. And you have God at the very end of this discourse, after God spends what, six or eight, chapters just raking Job over the coals for daring to question him, God comes back and says, you three friends that came here that were trying to uphold my righteousness, you didn't do right. But my servant Job has. You see, and what I read in that is maybe a necessary inference, if you like that, that God doesn't mind it if we question him. Otherwise, why would he have said that Job was in the right when he did so? And why would he have blessed him? Yeah, exactly. Why you would know, he have blessed him again yeah. after going on the tirade Job went on? Yeah, why would he have, have ended up blessing him? Well, you know, he would have just said, "How dare you question me and, and strike you str- struck him dead or strike him dead?" Boom. But he didn't. That's not what he did. He ended up blessing him. And I had heard that explanation before too as a possibility that Job was 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 not really buying everything God was saying and still was using a bit of sarcasm. But was like, okay, I hear what you're saying, but. Yeah, I'm still going to follow you, but I'm just not sure if I'm if I'm there, God. Um, more of more of uh, you know, I, I'm hearing you, but I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. And either way, though, it doesn't negate everything you just said on how Job questions God the whole time. And not only is Job never struck down in this story uh, or this parable, I believe, but he also is blessed at the end. Now, where some people will come back. They'll say, yeah, Lee, but ultimately God's response is you just have to shut up and listen to what I have to say. And, you know, and I think that's why it's it's important to look at all of these different verses because there are, it's not, you know, you don't just have Job, you have a plethora of times where, yeah, in Job, God does come back with an answer and, def- and, he, and, and God defends himself. But in these other instances we've looked at so far, 
with Abraham and with Moses, God didn't defend himself. God admitted, for lack of better words, defeat, if you will. And I, I don't even know if I like the word defeat so much, but God allowed himself to change, or at least it's it, it appears that way through the story and the way that it's told. And that's how the Jews understood God as someone that they could negotiate with, some somebody that they could wrestle with, somebody that they could question, someone that they could even rebuke and say, hey, my burden's too great. I need your help, God. What you've given me is too much. And God's like, yeah, you're right. I'll help you out. And I love the way going back to what you were saying earlier with Moses is, is, is how you showed Moses at both ends of that. So on the one hand, Moses is the one that's calming God down. And, and God is, is viewed as the one, for lack of better words, who is wrong. And then the other instance, God's the one, or Moses is the one fired up and telling God, well, God, this is too much. And then God's agreeing with Moses. And so on, in both instances, God is conceding the, that point. But you have other verses too I just want to make people aware of. And there's more than what we're discussing. These are just a handful of verses. But Hezekiah in 2 Kings 21 through 6 was told he was going to die. And yet he asked God, he prays to God. He says, I, I, I don't want to die. I, I, want, I want to live more. And so God, according to the text, gave him 15 more years. So at best, that is someone who is not just accepting their fate after being told what their fate is. They challenge that fate. And once again, for better words, they won. Uh, my one of my favorite stories in, in all of the Bible is Second Chronicles thirty with Hezekiah. I talk about it all the time, but the it's taking, a great story, man. The, the, yeah, the taking of of the Passover and how they did so according to eight verse eighteen through twenty, contrary to the law, and yet Hezekiah intercedes on their behalf and says, "God, I know what they're doing is wrong. It's against Mosaic law, but is there a way you can accept them? Because look, they're coming here to worship. They love you. They have good hearts." And the text says that God looked upon their hearts, he accepted them, he blessed them, and they went ahead and partook an extra week than what was prescribed. And once again, do we see God being upset or angry or trying to strike them dead? No. Was God mad at Hezekiah for interceding? Absolutely not. Uh, another passage, one that I was not familiar with, that is to me a powerful passage, a powerful passage, if I, if I can say his name correctly, but Zelophehad. Zelophehad, yeah, Zelophehad, um, in the book of Numbers, chapter 27, verses 1 through 11, he had passed away, and he didn't have any sons. He only had daughters. And so according to the laws of inheritance, since there were no sons to give his money to, it, it went to his brothers. Well, the daughters didn't think that was fair, because here they were about to enter into the promised land, and they had been faithful. And where were they going to live? What was going to be their inheritance? Where were they going? Where were they going to stay? What what part of the land was going to be theirs now that their father had died and that land naturally went to uh, to their uncle? So they didn't like that law. They didn't think that law was fair. And so they ended up going to Moses and the judges and the elders and challenging this law. And they went through by reason and said, look, this isn't fair. Yes, we're women. We know that we're second-class citizens. <laughs> I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> um, and they were during that time and in that culture. And I don't believe that's, that's, that's objectively and morally true, but that is the way it was during that point in time. But they went and challenged this law and said, this isn't fair. We believe, we think, we deserve that inheritance. We don't think this law is fair. So guess what? Moses did not rebuke them. 
Moses didn't say, get out of here. Moses went, and according to the story, he goes and he has a conversation with God, and God says, yes, it's, it's, this is right. This sounds good. So he told Moses that, and Moses went, and they changed the law. And then the law stated, well, if, if, if a man dies and he has daughters, and uh, he obviously doesn't have a wife, uh, most people believe that his wife had already passed away. So if, if he doesn't have a wife, and he doesn't have any sons, then instead of that money going to one of his brothers or, or another close of kin, instead, that, that inheritance needs to go to his daughters. So this is actually a law about a law that states when a law is unfair, we need to be willing to change it. We need to be willing to challenge God in that instance. Well, and how wild is that, that it runs completely against the grain than what you often see in f- more fundamentalist evangelical circles. Yeah. I mean, that runs completely against the grain oh, yeah. of the paradigm that you came up in, that I came up in. It's, it's, it's absolutely just abhorrent to even think that you would question God on this. I can remember conversations whenever I was in the beginning stages or maybe the early intermediate stages of my own deconstruction and detoxification where I was thinking about, you know, the hair, for example. And one of the examples I use in that episode, if you want to go back and listen to that episode on the covering, it's there, it's in the archives, go listen to it. It's great. Um, I'm not just saying that because Kevin and I did it. it. It really is good stuff. But You know, that perspective on the hair, I made the point, well, and I made this point in a conversation with someone that I was having. If you have a sister that serves God in every way, she, she sacrifices of herself. She gives of her time and her resources to serve others. And then she dies and steps into heaven. Well, if she stands before God and God says, you know, Jesus is looking at her and saying on the day of judgment, you, you know, I was naked and you clothed me. I was hungry. You gave me food. I was thirsty. You gave me something to to drink. And then as much as you've done it to the least of these, you did it with these people. You did that to me. You did that to the people that bear my image. You gave so much. You embodied the gospel and everything you did. But because you had bangs and you cut your hair about shoulder blade length, I'm sorry. You're just not going to be able to, to go into heaven. And he pulls a lever and she, you know, drops through a trap door into, into hell for either eternal torment or complete annihilation, depending on what position you take on that. I said, that doesn't sound like a very you know, good representation of God. That just seems just absolutely crazy. It seems wild to me. Mm-hmm. And my, the, the person I was talking to said something to the effect of, well, that's still the, something to the effect of that's still the law we are to follow. Yeah. Well, we still have to trust God. We can't <laughs> lean on our own understanding <laughs> yeah. here. And yet you have these daughters of Salafahad who, who are saying, no, this isn't right. They're leaning on their understanding. They have an innate knowledge of what is fair and what is right and what is good and what is bad. And that is informing them, their experience. Then all of that comes together and coalesces into this beautiful moment where they question God and the law changes because of it. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Yeah. They actually change. They had the law changed. A new law was put in place because they were willing to challenge what they deemed to be unfair and what by all accounts was very unfair. I mean, we would still argue that that's unfair today. And yet that law ended up being changed. And another one we can look at, which we did a whole episode on this one is in Matthew 15, 21 through 28, when a Canaanite woman ends up changing Jesus, changes Jesus mind. Um, Jesus wasn't going to heal her, heal, heal, excuse me, heal her daughter 
And so she continued to persist. And we see Jesus being pretty aggressive with her, really, um, even inferring that she's just a dog. And and uh, she replies, but yes, even, even the little dogs get crumbs that fall from the master's table. And it ends up changing Jesus' mind. She really challenges Jesus. She didn't just accept what he said. She really challenged it because she realized this isn't right. This isn't fair. And there are things that we've been taught. And it may have been, in our minds, solidified for many years. But then we begin to live life. We begin to gain some wisdom. We begin to gain experience. And we start to question, well... I know this is what I was taught, but this just doesn't seem fair. Yeah. And instead of saying, well, we'll just, it doesn't matter what seems fair to you. This is what the Bible says. No, no. We, we need to, yeah, we need to be willing to think critically. We need to be willing to challenge those things. And that's what we see all throughout Scripture. And like I said, there's a lot, many more instances that we could look at. But to me, these are powerful. These are These are powerful, powerful examples. And so that leads us to our final question, and that is, can faith and doubt coexist? No, Kevin, they cannot. Faith and doubt cannot coexist. You have you either That's have absolute one hundred percent faith, yeah. ninety nine and a half won't do. You have to have one hundred percent full certainty and faith. So, hey, podcast yeah. is over. We can go ahead and close. That's it. Thank you, thank you for coming out tonight. Thank you for listening. You know, but no, but, that but, is a very important question yeah. because so many do operate under that paradigm. They equate their faith with their certainty. Well, they 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 see faith over here, and that means they know everything. And then on the other side, they have doubt, which means, oh, that must not be in the category of faith. And so there's this dichotomy that they've created between faith and doubt, when in reality, I believe faith and doubt coexist. They have to coexist. I believe that they're essential component of one another. I, I think you have to have doubt if you're going to have faith. And I was actually raised, you know, I, th I think people can take faith to a point where it's just a blind leap, and I don't agree with that. I don't think that that's accurate. I think that there is evidence and good reason to be a Christian. But I also think we can get so caught up in the idea of providing arguments for why we're a Christian that we think that any question means that we don't have a strong faith. Or if we have many questions, then we must have a weak faith. That's not true. And one of my favorite passages to demonstrate this is John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist was prophesied about when he came to earth, when it was time for him to minister about Jesus. What did he do? He said, hey, I'm here. Jesus is coming. Prepare the way of the Lord. Here he comes. John was considered even by Jesus to be one of the greatest prophets, the greatest among men. And yet... What happened to John the Baptist when he got put in prison? He started he began to doubt. He started doubting. He started mm -hmm. questioning. Now, this also is a we could get into a subpoint of well, what does it mean when someone's inspired? Because why would John the Baptist, if he was prophesied about, if he was a prophet, and if he was prophesying about Jesus? Why then would he turn around and start questioning and asking, is this really the Christ? Is this really the Messiah? But he did. He yeah. asked that. And the response was not, John, you should know better. You're a prophet of God. The response was not, well, you don't have enough faith. The response was not, well, you're inspired. Can't you just go inside your inspirational brain and, and, and figure yeah. it out? Yeah, I mean, no, no, nothing like that. Instead, 
they go back, these messengers go back to Jesus, and Jesus said, this is what you need to tell John. Tell him that uh, you know the blind can see, tell him that the deaf can hear, tell him that about all these great miracles that are taking place. He didn't fault John for doubting, which to me is mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing yeah. how a prophet of God, not just a prophet of God, the prophet of God who brought in Jesus is now in prison questioning whether or not Jesus is truly the Messiah. That's fascinating well, to me. I think another layer to that story also ties into preconceptions. Yeah. Because, you know, earlier when we were talking about how we began our our faith journey into a new detoxified Christocentric faith away from the trappings of legalism, we talk about that guilt that we feel. And I think with John, I think so many people had this understanding of who the Messiah was going to be, that he was going to be this great leader that would lead Israel out from under the thumb of Roman oppression and, and reestablish Israel as the world's preeminent superpower on the face of the earth. And that that Messiah would cause the throne of David to persist and reign forever and ever and ever in physical terms. That's the preconception that they had. That was the misunderstanding that so many of Jesus's followers had. Mm -hmm. They thought that that's who he was going to be. And I don't think it really is that much of a stretch to think that maybe that's what John had in mind too. Inspired or not of the Holy Spirit, he was still human. He wasn't perfect. Jesus was. John wasn't. But he still had preconceptions that he had to deal with. He still had these understandings that he had to deal with. And whenever his reality and his experience began to fly in the face of those preconceptions, he found himself in the same state that you found yourself in, that I have found myself in, and that so many of our listeners have found themselves in. Well, if we're going to rise once again to the preeminent superpower of the world, what am I doing in this prison? In a Judean prison would be no walk in the park. They're not going to have a nice little stainless steel toilet over here in the corner with, with clean floors and anything else. He's likely sharing a cell with rats and, and reprobates. And doesn't look like we're winning right now. <laughs> yeah, Jesus, don't know that this is the way that your messiahship, that this kingdom's supposed to go. If I'm the herald of the messiah, if I'm the forerunner of the messiah, what am I doing in prison? I mean, to me, it makes perfect sense that he would think that because I really believe that John the Baptizer's experience, it's the same experience that I've had and that you've had and that so many have had. And so he wonders. And what you said is what blows my mind. Jesus doesn't call him out on the carpet for it. How dare you doubt me in my work? I'm the one whose shoes you're not even worthy to bear. You said that yourself, dude. You can't even tie my shoes, and yet you're going to question me. How dare you? Yeah, you were you, you were know, giving so a good good sermon in the wilderness, John, talking about oh boy, there's the one that's coming that's so much better than me, and here you are in prison now. I don't even know if this is really the Messiah or not. Yeah, what what's the deal, John? Jesus doesn't do that, and dude, that's what blows my mind is that God, he's so much bigger than we are. And that's just another sign in my mind that we see reflected in the God of the Old Testament and also with Jesus. Because, you know, we've talked about how, and I don't know if we talked about this in, in much detail. I know we've touched on it. But my perspective on God is, is you do see different facets of God being revealed. And in my mind, where I land now, any picture of God that we take in that doesn't coalesce or align with who we see in Jesus is not an accurate view of who God is. Right. But we see God changing his mind on Lot's behalf, you know, because Abraham negotiated with him. We see God changing his mind on Hezekiah's behalf. We see God changing his mind on Moses's behalf. We see God changing his mind 
you know, on the behalf of all of these different people. And you see that same gentle demeanor with Jesus whenever John questions. Yeah. Yeah, you do. I mean, Jesus is not attacking him and and telling him how dare he question. And there's another point that can be, I think, uh, gleaned from this, and that is sometimes we can preach with confidence in public, but we live in doubt in private. Oh yeah, <laughs> and it's, for sure. it's you know, and that's something that we we have have to just. I think the more vulnerable we can be with our questions, the better that we can mm-hmm. develop this faith. But something that I never really thought about until you just brought this up is that yes, they did have this idea of who God was supposed to be or who Jesus was going to be on Earth, and they they believed that He was going to be this conquering King, that He was going to come and deliver physical Israel and reign, and that everything would be okay. And so there's no doubt in my mind that John probably had that same view. And when what he was seeing with Jesus was not matching up with his view, that caused him to question a lot of things. And and, and come to find out, his view was wrong of who God is. His view was wrong yeah. of what the purpose of Jesus uh, was, to, to or his objective, and what Jesus was supposed to come to do, and what he did come to do. And I want to make this point because this, to me, is is something I had never thought about until you talked about it. I think it's powerful. It was the Jews' closed-mindedness, and and let me put the the elitist Jews, the religious elite, I guess you can say, because many Jews did follow Jesus, or at least a handful of Jews did. But it was many of these elitist religious, these elitist, elitist religious religious leaders. leaders. Yeah, there you go. That's hard to say. Say that three times fast. It kind of is, yeah. And they were the ones who, who because they were so closed minded, because they refused to think critically, they missed Jesus. Yeah. And I, I think today this, this, the same can be said with us when we refuse oh, to think yeah. critically, when we refuse to be open minded. Are we missing Jesus too? And you know, going back to to this whole idea of people who questioned, uh, a couple more examples, and then we'll wrap it up because I know we've been talking a while here. But um, in in Mark chapter nine, verse twenty one through twenty nine, there was a man who came to Jesus, and he wanted Jesus to heal his son. And Jesus said, "Well, if you have faith, you know, if if you have just a little bit of faith, then then all things are possible." And he said, I believe, help my unbelief. If that's not the best definition of faith, I don't know what is. I believe, but I don't believe. Like, I want to believe, but I'm having problem believing. And what happened? This unbelieving belief, if you will, was counted as faith according to, to God and according to Jesus. So that means that doubt is not the antithesis of, of faith. Doubt is not in opposition or in contradiction to faith. It is a vital part of it. And finally, you know, one of my favorite, like I said, Psalms is, is Psalm 88, where David feels neglected. And he's questioning, well, what if I'm wrong? You know, what, where, where is God? Where is God in all of this? And so what I tell people is, this is the kind of faith I have. I have the kind of faith like John the Baptist that says, what if I, what if I am wrong? What if I've missed all this? What if, what if I have a misunderstanding? I have the kind of faith that says, yeah, I believe, but I don't believe. I need help. Can you, can you help me believe? <laughs> and I have the kind of faith that says, where are you, God? All of those things 
are incorporated into faith. They are not, like I said, in opposition to faith. They are vital characteristics of faith. So if you've ever been to a point in your life where you're wondering, where are you, God? God, I'm mad at you. Where are you? That's faith. If you've ever been at a point where you go, yeah, I, 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 I do believe, but in the back of my head, I mean, I don't know. I mean, at the end of the day, there's a lot of views out there. There's a lot of religions and hey, I don't know, but I do believe, but I don't know if I believe. Then you have faith. Or if you've ever been to that point where you're like, well, I, 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 I don't know if I'm right. I mean, I think I am, but I could be wrong. I'm not sure. That's faith. All of these things are faith. And so don't ever let someone tell you, you can't question God. You can't question the Bible. You can't question your perception of God or the Bible. Don't let anyone ever tell you that, especially based upon two small cherry-picked verses that are typically way out of context when they're being applied that have to do, especially Isaiah 55, 8, 9, with mercy and grace more than anything else. Now, are there times once I've, I've, I've gone through my experiences, I've gone through my study, and something maybe horrible has happened to me, and I don't understand, and I still question God, but I still am going to have faith, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 may be a useful verse in that moment. But may we never weaponize Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, or Isaiah 55, 8, and 9, to coerce somebody into believing a doctrine or into staying in a system out of fear, because that's not what those passages are talking about. No, no, not at all. It's it's they're not talking about that, and that is promoting a faith that is more based on certainty than it is actual faith. I love how you just put that, man. That was that was absolutely in my mind a beautiful description of what faith can be. Because, I mean, we have people that reach out to us that are, they're navigating these waters and mm-hmm. they really don't know where to even start. Yeah. They don't have your training on how to, you know, look at the Bible or memorize scripture. They don't have the training that so many other scholars have to be able to dig deep into the weeds and get into the weeds. A lot of people don't even know where to start. They don't know what resources are trustworthy and what aren't trustworthy. And, you know, for a lot of people, we would be considered a trustworthy resource. And for equally as many, maybe even more, we would be considered an unreliable or untrustworthy source. I mean, if we're going to be frank, I mean, that's, that's just the way it is. But, you know, there are people that struggle and they feel guilt whenever they have any kind of doubt whatsoever. And I just want to echo your sentiments to those of you that have those struggles. You're in good company. Yeah. John the Baptist doubted. I mean, Paul face troubles in his own life as well. We can read about those in his epistles. We see it all through the scriptures. We see it all through the Bible. The picture of faith that says you have to be absolutely certain in everything that you believe and that you have mental assent towards, that is a very modern view of what faith is, and it's not a biblical view. My understanding of faith has shifted now, whenever I think about these terms, well, what if I'm wrong? That doesn't terrify me and, and throw my everlasting soul into jeopardy. It's it, whenever things happen, I can, I have the freedom to question God. I have the freedom to ask God to, to I don't want to say prove himself to me. That's the wrong phrase. That's the wrong turn of phrase. But I have the freedom to be real with God. I have the freedom to question him. I have the freedom to question my beliefs. I have the question, the freedom to question my understanding and my perspective. 
And I have the question, I have the freedom to question God and ask him, well, where are you whenever this happened? Where are you whenever that happened? Yeah. Because if, if, if the God that I serve is worth serving, if the God that I serve really is the author and finisher of not just my faith, but the cosmos and all of reality in all of space and all in time, in all of this craziness that we call our physical realm, our physical reality, he's big enough to handle my questions and he's big enough and merciful enough and loving enough to assuage my doubts whenever they arise. No doubt. Yep. And and point you in the right direction. Put the right people in your life. I mean, I I big time believe in that now because I've been able to experience it. And when I yes. have questions, I look back and I see what I believe to be God working. Now, I'm not going to sit here and say I'm naive enough to uh, to, to just accept that without any questioning. I mean, certainly I can think, well, maybe that's just me trying to, to, to find a pattern where none exist. And that's just me and my perception. But at the same time, I still believe, I still believe. And Lee, you're talking about how people doubt. And if they doubt, that's okay. I've been asked, you know, what, where, where do you stand now? You know, and, and even people have questioned my own Christianity. Are you still a Christian? I say, yeah, some days, most days probably I would consider myself a Christian. That's a good answer. Um, but there's, there's some there, and I'll be honest, there's some days I wake up and I'm just, I don't really know if all, if maybe all of this is just fake. I, I, yeah. I, to, to say I don't have those thoughts, to say I don't even entertain those thoughts would would be uh, dishonest because I certainly do. I mean, when I especially now that I'm studying more world religions, I just think, well, man, you know, I was born in America. This is what I was conditioned to believe. As I've learned more about the Bible, maybe I'm just trying to make it fit so that I can still have faith. I don't know. But, you know, I, I don't know where I'm at today. And then the next day I'm like, oh, man, no, no, like, me and God, we're on it right now. I mean, everything is good. So I, I don't want people going away from this thinking that if you don't wake up every day with just this feeling that that that, that everything is good and that you've got all the answers, that doesn't mean you don't have faith. In fact, it might mean you have more faith in the person who's never second-guessed their belief system, and that's just something that they've always done. That, that takes more faith to continue in a system that you are constantly evaluating than someone who just shows up for church a couple times a week and, and says they're following God. And I'm not judging that person. I'm because I mean, everybody has their own personalities and some people question more than others, but that usually does take a, a lot more faith to, to, to struggle with those types of questions, but ultimately to still be okay with it. And there are many things where, you know, I had someone today, a good friend of mine, who's a preacher uh, for a very conservative Church of Christ. And, uh, you know, he's one of those that I consider stuck. And there's a lot of people who are in that situation. No one really believes what he, he, no one knows what he really believes. And he's trying to figure out what to do about it. But, you know, he told me he feels like he's being dishonest and he doesn't even know where he's at with his faith. And I said, brother, that's okay. That's okay. Just take one day at a time and continue to walk with God. Faith, it's okay. Once you start having a, an Eastern understanding of faith instead of a Western understanding, faith becomes a lot more understandable. Well, and you know, you say that, man, and it reminds me of those conversations that you and I had, what, three, three and a half years ago, whenever I was beginning to unravel that big ball of wire. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. You're, you're one of the first people that I called and, you know, that's how you and I reconnected. And, in, in one way, it makes me sad to hear whenever other people are having these same struggles. But in another way, it's it's sort of a relief because I know I'm not alone in it. Yeah, I know that yeah. 
I'm not having to shoulder that load by myself, even if these are people that I'm not associated with or acquainted with. I've been there and I know how rough it can be. Maybe not from an employed ministry perspective, but I still, it's not easy. And especially whenever your whole livelihood rests on it, it's, it it becomes even more difficult then too. But no, I think this has been a really good conversation. It's questioning God is not a taboo thing. No, no, the scriptures, the scriptures are full of examples of people that have questioned God and they're called blessed for it. Joe being, in my opinion, one of the best examples of it. But as we wrap this up, do you have anything else that you want to share? Well, before I was going to just it? put in another plug for my, my new book, and it is coming out. I promise you it is coming out um, within the next few months. Within the next few months, I'll put that out there. Awesome. Um, so summertime, it's coming out. But I do talk a little bit about the idea of faith and how the Enlightenment period really changed our understanding of faith. Now, they were already ba- based upon a lot of uh, you know the influencers of the early church fathers, who none of none of which were were Jewish. Um, faith already started to take a, a turn at that point in time, as far as how people understood faith. But one of the points I make is the difference between having a true Eastern understanding of faith, which was the context in which Jesus taught faith, versus how today we have a very much Western understanding of faith, in that. We really need to, uh, if we're going to understand faith, we have to understand what faith looked like in its original Eastern context. And so we don't really know much about that today. Most of us don't because we haven't studied that. We just take faith based upon this post-Enlightenment academia understanding of faith being someone who has all the answers and feels confident. That's not what faith looked like when Jesus was talking about faith. And so I get into some of that in my book, too. Well, I know it's definitely going to be worth reading, and let me just say this while we're talking about your book. I really appreciate the fact that you're not rushing to put it out there, because I know you wanted to release it last fall. I know you really wanted to release it like last somewhere between late summer, like around August or somewhere around October. I know it was kind of in that time period between August and October, you were wanting to put it out there, and you decided to go back and make some other revisions. You've had a lot of people look at it, and dude... I appreciate your studiousness on that. I appreciate the work that you're putting into it and the fact that you're thinking about it and you're not just wanting to get it out there just to get it out there. You're wanting to make sure that it's a quality piece of work. And I know having read your rough draft, I know you made a lot of revisions, man, it's fantastic. And it's hard for me to see, frankly, how you could make it much better than what that draft was. So I'm really excited to read the final product. And I know our audience is is as well. And I just want to give you kudos for taking your time with it and making sure that you're focusing on quality above all else. So thank you for that. There is a fine line that I have found. And this is why I've had a lot of eyes reading this. There's a fine line between developing someone's faith and destroying their faith. Yes. And I believe this book can teeter on that line. And that's why I have really, really, really tried to make sure it doesn't (laughs) go in the wrong direction. I do not want this to tip the scale of someone in the wrong direction. Um, You know, so it, you know, there's a lot of concepts that I talk about and I've, I've ended up taking some things out of the book because um, I've had some of my friends read it and they're like, you know, this right now is just this, this would be too much for me. Um, because this is, this is, this, I would need to, I would need to have a better, better foundation before I jump into some of these concepts. So there have been things that I have taken out of the book because, uh, I feel like if this could hurt someone, 
I, I don't want it in there. Now, granted, it's not going to be perfect. There, there will still probably be people who, who might feel that way. Um, or, or who feel like I maybe have included too many things in there that I, I, I should have maybe introduced more slowly, but I try to, there's such a difficult, it's such a difficult balance, balance to get, man, yeah. because my first book was a lot easier to write. It's my story. Um, you know, this one, I think I have over like 420 footnotes and references in it. And, you know, I've, I've had at least, I don't know, close to, close to a dozen of people who either have their doctorate's degrees in their specialty of, of a certain field, read certain parts of this book or, or the totality of the book to make sure that I'm accurately not, not only representing the facts and the information, but I'm doing so fairly and I'm also not abandoning or neglecting other perspectives because I feel like that's what so many of books do today, where they'll only put what seems to coincide with their belief instead of putting all the evidence out there and, and more or less letting people decide for themselves. And that's what I hope my book is, putting that evidence out there, putting the information out there and letting people make those judgment calls for themselves. Well, absolutely. Because that's at the end of the day, so long. <laughs> well, yeah, but, but dude, I mean, that's a hard process to go through, but at the end of the day, your faith is your faith. And, yeah. you know, for people to just try to continue to water and feed and grow an echo chamber, you know, to be able to, to create something, especially in this day and time that transcends that echo chamber mentality. It's not easy. It, it's not easy at all. Well, and I, I know this episode's not about the book, but it, it does coincide because a lot of some of this information we've discussed is in there. But I yeah. actually had a friend of mine uh, tell me that he said, well, well, Kevin, would it not be better to just let people live in ignorance? And, and I said, no, like I, 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 have, I have never been that type of person because for, you know, for, and I've even had people recommend I put a disclaimer at the beginning of the book that basically if you're happy with your faith, don't read this book. I don't want to do that because I've never been one to censor information. And I don't, I don't like that. I think that if, if Christianity is a, tr is the true religion, if, if what we're saying about Jesus, I'm not talking about all the countless doctrinal topics, because I mean, God knows we're probably wrong on most of that anyway. But as far as believing in God, as far as believing, um, you know, that, that, that Jesus w was God manifested on earth and, and, and trying to follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, as far as that's concerned, if it's so weak that we cannot look at the information without becoming a non-believer, then to me, that's not a religion worth following. And yeah. so, you know, I was telling my friend, I said, look, I said, I understand what you're saying, that there may be people out there who are content with their faith. I said, but those people aren't going to probably be reading this book to begin with. So I, re I really don't have to worry about that. I'm not forcing anybody to read this book, but for those who, you know, who are kind of in that, that, that phase of searching and not really knowing where they're at, man, this book, the concepts in this book, I'm just going to tell you are why I'm still a Christian. I'm just going to put it to you out there. If if I was not a if if I did not learn these concepts, and that's why I'm writing this book because I hope it helps other people. I got to the point where I felt that Christ, that, that the authors I were I was reading, the the doctrines I had been taught, there was so much special pleading going on that it was like, man, this is, this is a joke. Like I can't yeah. keep believing like this. <laughs> yeah. I am having to sacrifice my intellectual honesty. I'm having to sacrifice compassion. I'm having to sacrifice all my experiences. I, I mean, it doesn't even make sense. And so 
learning about how I can understand the Bible in not only a better way, but a more contextual way, just like we were talking about faith. When I started realizing, wait a minute, Jesus taught faith not in a Western world, but he taught faith in an Eastern world. So I need to go learn what faith looks like in, in, in the Eastern world, especially 2000 years ago. What did faith look like back then? So what all of those cons. Anyway, man, I could talk about this all day because that's all I've been writing about. But <laughs> I'm just super excited to get that out there to people. But that is why I'm, I'm very careful. I'm very cautious. And I, I do not want to be antagonistic toward anyone. I want to be fair with the evidence. And I ultimately want to be loving um, when, in the way that I'm writing. Well, and your book, it's, it, it answers the questions of your faith that you've dealt with and it's the answers that made sense to you. And it all started by questioning the paradigm that you had grown up with and that you were a part of, which also entailed questioning God and your understanding of who God was, which is what yeah. we have talked about that. That's what we've talked about in this episode. So those of you out there that are listening, that are struggling, that are struggling with your faith, that have questioned God and questioned the concept of God, that have questioned the doctrines that you adhere to and what you have been taught to believe either by your parents or your your pastor or your preacher or your church or whoever it is, people that are sincere in their beliefs, they love you, but you're not finding those answers to be adequate anymore. Those answers just don't work for you anymore. It's okay. You can question God. You can question the scriptures. You can question your understanding of the scriptures. You can do all that. It's fine. There's plenty of precedent for it. You're not alone. You're not going to be thrown into a devil's hell for all eternity for merely thinking the thought that, may, of well, maybe I should question God about this or how dare I question God. No, don't worry about that. You're in good company. It's going to be okay. To all of you, we encourage you to reach out to us if you have any questions. We are just thrilled and blown away with the response that this podcast has received. We love all of you. We appreciate our subscribers on our YouTube channel. We don't have many yet, but we're getting more every single day. Please share this with your friends. Share it with your neighbors. Share it with your loved ones. Share it with people you go to church with. If you think that someone could be blessed by this, if you think someone could be helped by it, or even if you don't like what we're saying and you want someone to just pick apart everything we're saying, we'll send it to them too. We don't care. That's fine. We appreciate all discourse that we can get, but we love you all. Please like our channel, subscribe on YouTube, give us that five-star review on iTunes. We appreciate you all, and we bid you all a good night. Good night.